Welcome to Uplink. I'm Seamus Byrne. Today, I speak with Professor Genevieve Bell. I kind of hardly know how to introduce her. At its simplest, Professor Bell is one of the most important thinkers in the world today on the present, the future, and the history of all things at the crossroads of technology and its cultural impacts. The fact that she's Australian is a wonderful bonus. Let's run down the list of credentials. She is a cultural anthropologist, a senior fellow at Intel, and a longtime vice president and researcher there. She recently returned to Australia to co-found a new school at ANU to build a new discipline in the way we develop and manage artificial intelligence in society. And on Australia Day, she received an Order of Australia for her distinguished service to education. I love getting to chat with her in the sense that I love giving her prompts in the hope of letting her talk about what's really on her mind and what's driving her thinking. It's an absolute pleasure to share this interview with Genevieve with you, which we recorded on a day of celebration at the 3AI in Canberra as they were preparing for a bit of a milestone day there. I'm lucky to have caught up with Genevieve many times over the years, and so this conversation just kind of started and I felt it was best to just share it where it begins and let you come on the journey from there. Here's my uplink with Professor Genevieve Bell. Can I just say how long has it been since we sat here doing this? This feels like quite some time. Well, actually, I was going to ask you. Is it IDF? Um, yeah. Or CBS? I was going to bring up one of the conversations we had. I thought IDF. it must have been. I was like, I'm thinking, <laughs> like, when was the last time I was sitting here? <laughs> <laughs> that was with Anna when Anna was uh, it was Anna, so it was Anna Torres, which means it's still you know, in her early com zero. <laughs> yep, and it was uh, the endless APAC journos coming to the states. Yeah, <laughs> and they're like, oh, "We have, we have, we have an Australian. She speaks Australian. You should go talk to them." I'm like, "Yeah, hi, I'm here to translate." Yeah, well, I, I mean, look, I'll just throw that straight at you. Then the, the thing that I remember about that was, I, you know, I was told. We've got this American, uh, sorry, we're this Australian as part <laughs> of our team. Told that. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh my God, who cares? So we'll try again. Hey, Seamus, how are you? <laughs> really good. It's nice to see um, you again. So, yeah, we it was about a decade ago. Oh, wow. And we, I was, you know, offered some time with you, the anthropologist at Intel. And I thought, okay, I'm not sure what we'll talk about. But I sort of thought, I know, I'll just throw a random sort of thought and said, what do you think about the idea of like intuitive? That seems to get abused a lot these days in consumer tech. And then that basically launched a like 40-minute chat about um, about just how abused and weirdly used that word is in the context. And suddenly I realized this person is great. This person is going to be a great person <laughs> to chat to. Um, so one thought I was having is what do you feel like are some of the abused phrases? Because that was a decade ago. And we're in a very different era of <laughs> consumer technology these days. Oh, wow. Um, you know, like algorithm is certainly one of those words that you think, what does it even mean? Mm. And people think it means something. But, um, yeah, yeah so that was ten just years, an Ten years thought. on, what are the kind of the phrases that echo around? And I think, what do they really mean? Yeah. Oh, God, that's such a good question. Probably a couple of them in my head at the moment. Um, we could have had this qu this conversation 10 years ago. It would have been about smart things. Yeah. So smart sort of made a comeback and it's equally troubling now as it was then because you think mm. smart in what sense? So I, I hear that one a lot. I think we've kind of come and gone on connected, but that's back again too. So yeah. you know, that kind of phrase smart and connected, which felt very new 10 years ago, feels weirdly new again. So I wonder about that. Um, the Internet of Things, 
was always a great phrase as far as I was concerned. It continues to be one of those ones where I'm like, what exactly are we talking about? <laughs> See, smart and connected. But I guess the phrase that is most bandied around and the one that I find most kind of confusing is probably artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, and every time I hear that phrase, I want to do sort of three things to it. One is I want to give it back its history. So I want to go back to 1956 and talk about Minsky and McCarthy and von Neumann and Shannon sitting around at Dartmouth College having a conversation about, you know, making machines that can, you know, perfectly simulate the human intellect. I also want to then say, why was it in 1956 that the phrase artificial intelligence felt so good? Because, of course, artificial Rayon, Nutrisweet, <laughs> happiness, intelligence, oh, <laughs> very good. Point. Not the, you know, messy emotions, not the subconscious. And then trying, you know, jokingly in my head, I sometimes think, what would that look like in 2019? Bespoke resilience. Oh, my God. Exactly. Nice, so yeah. the, you kind of you want to deconstruct the word piece of it. And then, you know me, I wonder what work it's doing. Like what's yeah. that phrase become a coverall for? Because mm. we say artificial intelligence. When you really push people, sometimes they're talking about algorithms. Sometimes they're talking about machine learning. Sometimes they're talking about augmented decision-making or next-generation process automation. And yet none of them have that loop back to the thing that was in some ways most radical in 56, which was the notion of a machine that would learn and change. And that for me is the interesting kind of piece we keep losing, right? In suggesting things mm. are smart and connected, we're not also talking about what they might mean to be proactive or prescient or evolving, which I guess takes us back to that whole conversation we would have had about intuitive too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back to very first principles, how do you even explain to someone like the barbecue chat version of what it is that you, you do here now? <laughs> Well, in Australia, the barbecue version of that is I did a big fang around the block because <laughs> usually the question is, Genevieve, you spent 30 years in America. Why would you come home? And I'm like, ah, it's just a big fang around the block because it turns out I've come home to the town I finished high school in. Yep. There seriously should be like some note in the magazine. Like if Dolly Doctor had had the column that basically said, because that ages me appropriately, you know, rule one, do not go back to the town you finished high school in. <laughs> I should have paid more attention, didn't. So one answer I often make is the one that just says, listen, you know, I spent 30 years to come back to the same place I finished high school. The better answer is usually the what I'm trying to do here is establish a new branch of engineering to take AI safely to scale. Mm. And then that usually, you know, requires a bit of unpacking all the pieces. Usually starts with the, are you seriously suggesting you're going to establish a new branch of engineering? Bullshit. And it's like, well, listen, I think we need one, right? It's yeah. very clear that we're at a moment in time where there are a series of technical systems that have scaled beyond any of the skills we have to manage them. So Boeing is clearly the canary down the mine shaft of next generation technical systems where it's clear the system doesn't end with the metal. <laughs> so yeah. we might need to have a different conversation. I think you can make an argument that what's been happening at Volkswagen is a kind of a signal of the kind of challenges we have to come. PG&E in California, so the electrical company, I think is another instance of we basically have these systems that have quite a degree of complexity that is technical and human and environmental, and we just don't have a language or a skill set to manage them. So for me, I know those technologies require a new branch of engineering. The AI piece, I usually say, well, you know, the AI of 2019 is locked inside your phone or your computer, but the AI of 2029 will be in our railway systems and our electrical systems and our water systems and our buildings. And we just don't know how to think about that in a way that would ensure that humans were safe and in the conversation. And so for me, the same way back in the 60s, computers required the invention of computer science. 
to get to scale mm. and to get beyond just the two applications that existed then, so Fortran and COBOL. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in that same moment, right, where we actually need a new set of skills and practices and predispositions to mm. get this technical system to a scale that will be meaningful in a way that is safe and increasingly for me sustainable becomes part of that conversation too. Do you think a lot of people even comprehend, I guess, what that next phase of scale means? Because I think, you know, there's a lot of these ideas where you think, well, it's already pretty much at scale, um, but clearly, you know, we're still in the early days. So how do you sort of help to frame that idea of what that next scale is? The only way I know how is to tell a sideways story. So for me, I think you're right. The question of what does scale look like seems an impossible question when it feels like almost everyone you know has a mobile phone and that mobile phone seems to be connected to something and gosh, there's a lot of data and things seem to be getting smarter. <laughs> Lots of buzzwords, right? Um, but when you take a pause and sort of think about that, for me it's about, okay, so the mobile phone is one thing, but it built a whole generation of other technologies. And then you sort of think back and go, what are the historical equivalencies that might be useful. And the one that is most stuck in my head actually comes from that very first industrial revolution. So thinking about the steam engine and I think about Newcomen and Watt who built that steam engine, right, in the days when it was called the atmospheric engine and it was stationary and it was two stories high and it was the first thing in the world that never slept and never ate and was inexhaustible and more powerful than a human. And it was really big and really loud and really cumbersome and it was like an engineering marvel. And for 100 years that's what it was, right, this big massive steam engine and it went from powering mines in Cornwall to moving machinery but it didn't fundamentally change right all it just did was it did something that humans had done but faster and it was remarkable for what it made possible and all the complexities it made possible too right but by the 1820s you suddenly go from a conversation about a stationary steam engine to a mobile steam engine and that steam engine in turn through Stevenson and the rocket and you know the Rainhill trials creates the possibility of railways And when the railway comes along, you're not just talking about the steam engine anymore, right? You're talking about railway carriages and train lines and tickets and accessions of land and fare structures and safety and ticket inspectors and time because you needed to share train lines. And suddenly this, you know, steam engine that was fixed in place has transformed itself into a whole system that then changed the way we thought about geography and time and space. And all I keep thinking about is the AI we have right now, that's the steam engine. Yeah. And the conversation I want to have is about the railway. And I don't think it's going to take us 100 years to get there, right? That was a luxury of that (laughs) moment in time. So what does scale look like? Well, for me, it's not just about scaling the object. It's about scaling the systems in which that object sits. So, you know, that for, for me then there's sort of two questions, right? What's the railway? (laughs) And what are going to be the consequences that don't feel quite in scope but will be there? So the most extraordinary thing to me about the uh, kind of creation of the railway system in Britain is that from the first kind of moments of the railway systems in the early 1830s when it's the Manchester and Liverpool line and then multiple train lines, is that in the 1830s time in England was bimodal. There was... Railway time and town hall time. So in every town in Britain, there was some bloke whose job it was to stand in the middle of the town square at midday, work out where the sun was at the top of the sky and then set the clock to it. So there's a little bit of variation in time, obviously, between London and Glasgow or Edinburgh. Hmm. And so each town hall clock 
said midday at a slightly different time. And that's fine if you're local because, like, it doesn't really matter. You're not going to get to the next place before time becomes a problem. But if you're now running a railway and you're sharing a train track, precision becomes hugely important, as does a train schedule. And so the guys that were building the railways put a clock on their railway stations and set that clock the same at all the railway stations. So now you have local time, which is variable, and railway time, which is fixed. And for nearly 40 years in Britain, that was allowed to kind of persist, right? You know, if you were trying to work out what the time was, you would stand in a town and go, well, the town hall clock tells me one thing. If I catch the train, I need to look at the railway clock. And it's not till an act of British Parliament in 1880 where they standardise all those times and railway time becomes standard time and you lose that local timeness. And I keep thinking about that and trying to imagine what are the unintended bigger systems that we will end up reconfiguring because AI is not the steam engine of the railway. Mm. And it feels like one of the difficulties there, in some ways it feels like the modern era people are less inclined to think or big companies are less inclined to even sort of say, oh, yep, the government regulation is a great idea to, in order to come up with the appropriate systems. But we do clearly already start to see a little bit of public backlash on that idea that it's like, well, how are you using all my things? And I, I want a better comprehension of that. Do you think the industry itself will sort of start to adopt best practice or will kind of governments get involved or will they try to beat the governments getting involved? <laughs> well, listen, I mean, if, again, I mean, I don't want to belabor the railway analogy, but there are some interesting things about at what point did governments step in to regulate railways and where were the points of regulation? So one of them was around safety. Mm. One of them was around fair classes. So actually the British system demanded that the railway should be accessible to all. So they created a fair class system so that multiple people could get on the railways, which is kind of wonderful. They created categories of people whose job it was to inspect the railways that were not from any one of the companies. And then they created these broader narratives by which certain things would happen. So how governments could and couldn't acquire land for railways and notions about how did you uh, set things like time. Mm. So if you imagine that we are in a moment in time where there are multiple railway systems, internet systems, data systems, we already see governments attempting to regulate in different places, right? So whether it's the EU and the GDPR bundle of legislation that says, yes, you can operate inside our ecosystem. But, you know, we have an expectation about citizens' relationships to their data. We want to make a distinction at law between being a citizen and being a consumer. We want to suggest that certain kinds of technology has to be explicable. So you have to be able to at least create a narrative about why a certain act happened. Like why was this service denied and this service allowed? And, you know, there are certainly notions about safety and data hygiene that are clearly at play there. Uh, inside particular countries in Europe. So you've got the German government who in the last two years have issued guidelines for what it would take to have autonomous vehicles operating inside Germany. And as of last week, their first report came out of their algorithmic living subcommittee about what uh, an algorithmic world might look like in the German context. So they're clearly, interestingly, Uh, in some ways challenging that rhetoric we have that uh, legislation impedes innovation because, in fact, you know, Germany has been at the forefront of a number of things in this space, both in autonomous vehicles, successful deployments of 5G. So, in fact, they've got a bunch of interesting stuff happening, but they are gating it in certain kinds of ways. You've got the US system that always feels much more laissez-faire and always has, but does ultimately also regulate. So whether they're regulating in terms of creating certain kinds of economic possibilities. So the point at which the US government stepped in and said there needed to be a standard so that text messages could be shared across 
telecommunications platforms because certainly when I got my first phone in America, I could only text people who were on the AT&T network. I couldn't text people who were on Verizon, <laughs> which seemed like a form of crazy. <laughs> and it took a while for that to sort of get sorted out. And you've clearly got Australia sitting somewhere in that conversation too and New Zealand and some of our other neighbours of how do we want to think about data, data rights, data ownership, how do we want to think about certain kinds of automation of process decisions and who gets the right of review, how do we want to think about how certain kinds of technical objects should be scrutinised and regulated. So I think we are starting to see the beginnings of that but it's a – it's an interesting space to imagine. But I think it's always, certainly in late-stage capitalism and early-stage capitalism, it was always a dance between companies producing technologies and regulators wanting to set guidelines. And I do think it's this really interesting tension between how we think of ourselves as citizens and how we think of ourselves as consumers yeah, and about where the lines should be drawn about mm. those things and about what it means to say that your citizens – should be safe in some ways and consumers should be safe in different ways. And I think that's been a, um, it's an interesting tension to watch play out and it's not clear to me how it is enacted over the next decade or so. Mm. I think you're very good at reflecting on sort of moments in history that actually, you know, are so obviously uh, in tune with what we're actually trying to do today. Mm. It, but it seems like something that's quite rare in a lot of thinking and certainly lots of debates always talk about how you know unique the problems are today and that therefore we have to solve everything from scratch all over again. Um, why is that such kind of a rare thing mm. that people kind of, we know women, we know we can learn a lot from history and yet people don't seem to be very good at doing it. Yeah, listen, I'm always fascinated by that. It was one of the most interesting and startling things to me when I came to Silicon Valley, gosh, like 20 years ago now, was the way all technology was presented as though it had just turned up one day, sort of fully formed and went, hi, here I am. And you're like, now, wait a second. <laughs> like there were multiple earlier versions of you that we could learn things from. Part of it, I think, in that particular instance is a very American phenomenon, right? So culturally, one of the things about America that is most disconcerting for me is that it is a country that is always looking forward. Now, the upside of that is it is a, means that there is a possibility of constant reinvention and indeed invention. It also means it's a country that can just shed its past and pretend certain things didn't happen. Now, of course, the reality there is there's many bits of American history that you might want to have more meaningful resolution of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it also means that one of the ways people get to building things newly is to not be encumbered by history. So there's a um, a Robert Noyce quote uh, at the doorway to the Intel headquarters in Santa Clara and Silicon Valley that says, um, don't be encumbered by history go and do something wonderful. And I've always thought that was a really interesting and slightly problematic yeah. invention or sort of invitation, right, that mm. sort of says, of course you should go and do something wonderful, but I actually think, I'm not sure that history gives us answers, but I certainly think it prepares us to ask better questions. And often with technical systems, if you know the history of it, you can start to see why some of the pieces sit inside of it, right? Like why were those the decisions? So if you go back and you look at that conference in 1956 at Dartmouth and you look at who funded it and you look at the questions that were being asked that have effectively set the agenda for AI for 60 plus years, you're suddenly left going, huh, okay. So the preoccupation with speech sensing and kind of Doing tasks that humans already do are all tied up with what 
the power of computation looked like in 1956 and about what the biggest existential threat was in 1956 to America, which was the Russians and the Cold War, right? And what they were hoping to do was create computers that would instantaneously understand the Russian language, not simultaneously, but instantaneously, and could make sense of it at an abstract level and could act before humans could act, right? It was about getting ahead in a, a, a time of intense conflict and pressure. And you suddenly realize that they weren't creating artificial intelligence to solve science problems or to detect weather patterns. It was about a very particular desire to win a very particular kind of conflict. Mm. And you then sort of look at all the things that have happened since and think, huh, (laughs) might we have made different choices if we thought we were worrying about something else, right? So, you know, in a period of time where in those early, in, you know, mid to early 50s, right, the power of computing seemed limitless and it didn't have a cost to it in the ways we might think of today. So, you know, last year, yeah, 2018, 10% of the world's energy budget is what it takes to keep data in storage and circulating, right? So the, basically the thing you most need to have successful artificial intelligence systems is data. Data is the thing that most shapes and most in some ways fraughtly so shapes AI, Terms out of the world's energy budget, that seems like a lot. That seems like a thing where you're like, mm, that's not without cost. <laughs> and you go back to 56 and, of course, they didn't have to care about electricity or energy, right? That mm. seemed like a boundless resource in <laughs> 1956. So look at 2019, we know slightly differently, not a boundless resource. And so there's a whole set of other questions you might be asking now that probably should have been asked then. Yeah. Um. So we're chatting on like the first anniversary of 3AI as a thing. Uh, yeah. What did, what's the journey been like so far? And I guess any of the surprises on, you know, trying to just set up an entirely new school of uh, academic study? Oh, yeah. Like, yes. So many lessons learned. <laughs> so it's uh, the end of the first year of students. It's the second year of the Institute. Yep. So we s- formally started the Institute in September of 2017. One single goal, establish a new branch of engineering to take AI no safely to scale. I know. And everyone's like, yeah, but what are you really doing? I'm like, no, that's what we're really doing. Like, but what are you really doing? I'm like, no, that is what we're really doing. They're like, no, really? I'm like, no, seriously. And of course, I'm sure people have that response because it seems insane to basically put your hand up and go, oh, pick me, miss. I'd like to establish a new branch of engineering. Except for the fact that it's been done before, right? So I do look back to uh, Alex and George Forsyth at Stanford in, in 66, 67, the guys at Purdue and sort of go, there was this moment in time where people consciously curated a new discipline into existence because they saw a set of technical systems that they knew needed new ways of thinking. So when we established the Institute, I had that in the back of my head that it had been done before and that it couldn't be impossible and that in fact it wasn't one of those things that was just going to spontaneously happen. It required people to consciously curate it into existence. So then if you say, well, I've decided I'm going to build a new branch of engineering. Turns out that's not one of the things you can just go on the internet and find the YouTube how-to video. There isn't oh. one. No, I know. Um, so we decided to do three things here. One was we decided that we should try teaching it into existence. So I borrowed the Stanford methodology of basically like, well, okay, you need a new branch of engineering. You need a curriculum. You need a curriculum. You need students. I'm big on the kind of notion of trying to co-create something. So... Part of what we did was invite a collection of people to come here with us and help us iterate a curriculum. So we're celebrating them finishing their first year here. So this year we had an intensive one-year master's course. Uh, We got 173 applicants a year ago um, to come join us, which is kind of crazy because, you know, the discipline still doesn't have a name. 
is still just a new branch of engineering, which <laughs> makes an excellent acronym. Um, <laughs> it was a one-year master's that had never been tried before and it was in Canberra. So, you know, if you're not from Canberra, that, or even if you are from Canberra, that can be a big request. And we got, you know, this incredible collection of people who applied and the ones that we ended up inviting to join us are amazing. Oh, there's 16 brave, wonderful, fearless, crazy people who've been on this journey with us. Um, half female, 30% from outside of Australia, range in age from about 25 to 60, had backgrounds in everything from computer science and engineering to art, philosophy, economics, public policy, architecture. I have someone who was on MasterChef. I have someone who was a serving member of the Australian military. I had someone who was teaching maths in the territory. Like it's Oh, and running a theatre group in Sydney and the largest makerspace in South Australia. And that's just some of them. Yeah. So that was crazy, right? And it's been, oh, it's been the most extraordinary thing. It's been such both a privilege and a responsibility. And I'm fairly certain they love and hate us in equal measure, which they probably should. That's about <laughs> the right response. Um, and it was a kind of, you know, how do you think about equipping people to be in this conversation about these metaphoric trains and railways, right? So partly it was a how do you level set everyone with a bunch of technical competencies. So everyone learned to code, everyone got exposed to AI and machine learning and algorithms and lightweight systems building. Everyone got exposed to thinking about how does code move physical objects because that's the important in some ways bridge. People did work together and in teams. We spent a year giving people a bunch of critical tools because for me, I think it's most important thing is about how do you go from a focus on problem solving to question asking. Mm -hmm. So how do you know to ask those questions, including where did it come from and who was there when it started and why and what are its component pieces and how do we think about all of them? And then in addition to the teaching piece, we've been running a year-long, well, two years at this point, uh, qualitative research projects looking at people who are encountering these systems and attempting to sort of understand in partnership with them where their challenges and opportunities have been. So we've been looking at a couple of big scientific research organisations, a couple of governments, a couple of private sector companies and some people in the arts world to sort of look at all the different places where these next generation AI systems are being built and like all the challenges that come with trying to stick autonomous vehicles underwater and in space, trying to build theatre experiences with AI, working on how the hell you regulate the stuff. So that's all been really interesting. And then the final kind of uh, piece of the puzzle has been about what would be the kind of theoretical scaffolding you'd need for this new branch of engineering, right? What's the thing it sort of the preoccupations it turns on? And for me, that's been about two things, right? One of them is about how do you think about what systems engineering needs to look like for the 21st century? I mean, systems engineering in the 20th century was very much about what happened when you stuck embedded compute into physical objects. So think, you know, well, first one would have been the Apollo rover training modules. And then after that, you know, well, aeroplanes and computers and all kinds of stuff, cars. Um, I'm really interested in what happens when you get to 21st century systems when the embedded computing is no longer embedded because, in fact, it's talking to all this other stuff and when the data is moving and it's changing state and the system doesn't end with the metal. So, you know, 21st century systems or in some ways in my mind, how do you put cybernetics back into systems engineering because they took it out in the 50s. So there's that sort of piece. And then it turns on six big questions, which hopefully for me we have a mnemonic for because – it helps if you have ways of remembering things. <laughs> so 
Three A questions, three I questions, also really good with an Australian accent. So, you know, will those technical systems, those cyber physical systems be autonomous? And if so, what does that mean? How do you think about things being autonomous? How do you architect for that and secure it and build it? And how do you not imagine that's human autonomy because that's always misleading? How do you think about what the agency those systems have or what, put a different way, what are the limits and controls on them and who gets to impose that? So even if the system is autonomous, it doesn't get to do everything and who gets yeah. to say what it doesn't get to do. How do you think about assuring those systems? So how do you think about safety, security, trust, risk, liability, explicability, manageability, ease of use, ethics and standards? Assurance turned out to be the only way I could formulate all of that into one letter. <laughs> um, and then the three I's. What are the indicators for those systems? How are we going to measure whether they're good or bad, basically? The industrial revolutions have left us believing that productivity and efficiencies are the only metrics and I don't think that's true. I want to think about sustainability in particular and environment, but there's others. What are the interfaces? How are we going to engage with these systems? Do we need to know that they're smart AI systems? Like will we need to think about them differently? Will they need to sound different? I think about my colleagues at Nissan desperately trying to make electric vehicles sound like real vehicles in order, yep. you know, to give humans a fighting chance. I love hearing that Hans Zimmer was doing a, you know, con concept design for BMW on making a sound car sound beautiful. Exactly, which is sort of feels to me a bit like the early moment of cameras in smartphones where they needed to have a shutter lens. Like, yes. yes, it's not a shutter, it's an algorithm. Like, oh, God. So there's the whole interface piece, right? And, you know, do we actually really need to talk about them? But I'm acutely aware that if we are making a whole set of systems that humans have spent decades dealing with change their behaviour, we have to say something, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had driven down the main street of Canberra, Northbourne Avenue in the last month or so, you would have seen that traffic lights have a new sign on them and the sign says, traffic signal may vary. And you think, well, I hope so because that's how it works. <laughs> and what, of course, they mean is that there's a new light rail come through and so the traffic signals no longer function the way they have. For, yeah, yeah they, they vary in a different way. But, <laughs> like, how do you say that? Right? Oh, the traffic light doesn't do what it used to do. It doesn't sound like a very useful sign. Yeah. So there's that sort of problem. And then I think there's this big, for me, open question about why are you going to make these systems AI'd in the first place? Like what is the problem you are trying to solve? What is your intentionality and how do you describe that accurately? So three A's, three I's gets us to a kind of intellectual scaffolding. So two years in, we have our first cohort finishing their education and going off to do capstone projects. So internships in places like, well, Telstra and KPMG, but also with the uh, Australian Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, with other uh, organisations all over the place. So, you know, various kinds of projects. We have our second cohort starting in <laughs> three months' time. Um, a bunch of the students that are here now are likely to stay with us to do PhDs. So all of that feels remarkable to me. We have, I think, a much clearer sense of what this new branch of engineering might be. And then we have all the possibility of, well, it's still being horribly wrong, which I really like. <laughs> and we're still growing. So, you know, the team is dementedly uh, diverse. And that's the thing I learned from my time at Intel, right, is when you bring together people who have profoundly different lived experiences and intellectual biographies and predispositions and backgrounds, you hope for two things. One, that yeah, they can share values. And two is that you can find a way to manage the inevitable conflict into something creative. Because when you have people who have all those really different backgrounds, they don't all get on immediately. They spend a lot of time going, rrr, rrr, I don't know about that. Rrr, rrr, and you're like, oh, good. Just, oh, it'll be fine. <laughs> so mostly I'm just spending a lot of time going, it'll be fine. <laughs> so one thought then is, you know, how... <laughs> James is like, yeah, you still talk a lot. No. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
um, how you go from, you know, how, what is that sort of picture down the road where we are, you know, talking about a series of cohorts who've come through? Yep. Is it that these ideas sort of spill out because they then go and, and live somewhere new or is it the papers that are written? Like how, what's that, the, oh. the, the cool talks you do? Yeah, so <laughs> what's listen. What's that process of it becoming a wider set of yeah, oh, such a it's it's the it is one of the questions that keeps me up at night. There are several. One of them is yeah, that's all really nice, but what are you actually doing? Um, if you get people over the hurdle of yeah, 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 but you say you're building a new branch of engineering, I'm like yes, I am. Um, I think there's a couple of ways you have to think about impact. So for me, it's less about outputs, which I think is always yeah. a traditional academic metric. I'm much more interested in impact. So I have a an unhealthy bias against writing papers and putting them behind paywalls and mm-hmm. putting them in peer review journals where the same people read them. Yep. The advantage for me at the moment is there isn't an obvious journal because the thing doesn't exist yet. So <laughs> yes. yay. So, so far I have a, oh, I don't know what I'd publish in problem. Um, we've been trying to think about impact in a couple of different ways. Um, part of it is I imagine over the arc of this institute, which is designed to be a uh, a five-year run, right? Mm-hmm. It was basically in five years we should either have worked out what that new branch of engineering is and it should be being institutionalized in other places or we will have failed and we'll stop. So this would be the other thing I learned from Silicon Valley. You should not keep trying things. Eventually you need to stop them and move on. That was an interesting conversation to have here. (laughs) (laughs) So I imagine in that five-year run, we will have, you're absolutely right, created a extended cohort of people for whom the discipline will live in their daily practice. And so partly I imagine it's the jobs they go do, it's the places they themselves end up, it's the key learnings they take away from this. So partly I imagine that new branch is instantiated in those people the same way computer science was in that first set of cohorts, mm-hmm. indeed the same way civil engineering was in the young men mostly that came out of Smeaton and Morsley's and Brunel shops right back in the 1820s and 30s. Uh, my hope is that we will produce something that looks like a textbook, though I don't know what a textbook should look like in the 21st century. So I keep thinking of the discipline in a box. Can I create yeah. the branch of engineering in a box you can take home? So sort of in my head somehow I have Raspberry Pi and Arduino objects. So like how does it <laughs> unfold out of a box? They hate it when I say that around here. But, you know. I it could of, make a really good unboxing video if you get it right. Absolutely. <laughs> like, oh, I've got the new branch of engineering has turned up in the post. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which does feel very 19th century. So that's kind of good. <laughs> so there's sort of something about what are the ways you try to share. And for me, I really don't want to have that kind of moment where I, you end up with the key insights locked up in a university. Mm. So while we have people that will come to us for a kind of uh, – macro credentials. I hope there's a bunch of ways we will take what we know here out in the form of micro credentials and short courses, right? So can we take the pieces that worked really well in our curriculum and share them with other people that aren't here? So can we take the Institute to others, which for me, hugely important, like how do we take the Institute out into regional Australia? How do we take it into boardrooms? How do we take it out of the country? So that's part of where we've been prototyping this year and we were really lucky to have some amazing uh, partnerships with Microsoft, KPMG and Macquarie who were all really interested in thinking about how they helped with that piece as well as the rest of the work we're doing here. But how do you basically get the ideas out of here into the world? I do think actually you should never undercall the merits of giving a good talk um, because I think that every opportunity to talk is an opportunity to bring people on the journey with you and to create an extended community of people who care. We're using traditional things out of, you know, any good startups playbook. How do you use social media? How do you use 
a decent newsletter? How do you create friends and family who are connected? I'm trying some things out of other spaces, the kind of Kickstarter approach. So are there ways where people want to be gift givers and financially involved so that they're helping spread the word? How do we create the possibility of other kinds of artifacts that we build? Um, And what's the kind of way you want to message the Institute so to kind of create a sense of the kind of questions we ask? And for me, there's a little bit of being ever so acutely aware that I'm not doing this in Silicon Valley and wanting to be a bit liberated by that. There's sort of something nice about being 13,000 kilometres away from that centre because it lets you have just a slightly cheekier point of view. So um, you will have noticed when you walked into the building we're in now, I apologise now for the noises you hear. There's renovation and reconstruction going on and we're blowing out the walls going that way so the (laughs) institute will take over this whole floor. But you will have noticed on the wall, you know, there's a picture of a very sad-looking robot and the the tagline, making robots feel guilty since 2017, (laughs) which is my attempt to try and sort of auger for a slightly different conversation so that it's not the endless finger of God and the robot finger meeting to talk about the future, which always makes me slightly crazy, but asking a slightly different set of questions. So I don't know, lots of interventions, I hope. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really love that idea that uh, it's funny, I became a journalist partly because I, I, you know, had started a PhD once upon a time and then went, I don't want to just talk to other academics about things. I want to try to talk to the public about why these things matter and why they're exciting. So I want to come back and do a PhD first. We'll talk one day when okay, I'm you know, not putting kids through uh, yeah, private well, school. Yeah, okay, different, different problem. Can't help you with that. <laughs> and when I'm not in Canberra anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, it's great to sort of hear that perspective on, you know, and, again, sort of how does that rub against, I guess, the wider academic sort of vibe that it's like, okay, these people aren't just going to be, you know, ticking boxes on putting out papers, but it is about building something for the future and something that – spreads you know in a more direct way one of the real delights for me and one of the reasons i came here not somewhere else was that the when i was first being wooed by the australian national university there was a new vice chancellor right so brian schmidt Mm. and part of where brian's vision for the university was was actually interestingly about returning the university to its earliest instantiation. So back in the 1940s when this university was founded by the then Prime Minister, by Chifley, his idea was that he wanted to build a cohort of Australian educated Australians who could solve hard problems and drive the conversation here. He didn't want to send our best and our brightest to Oxbridge or to the US. He wanted them to get to be the best and the brightest here and to use their intellect to solve the hard problems of Australia and the region. And that's an interesting mission for a university, right? He was very clear and he made it very clear to the first uh, vice chancellor of the university, Nugget Coombs, that this wasn't about chasing the sandstones in Australia. So it wasn't about chasing Sydney and Melbourne and those other places. It was really about solving hard problems and building capacity for the nation. And it was designed with that mission in mind. And that's kind of a crazy mission in some ways. And I was lucky enough to know Nugget when I was a little girl and he was an amazing man and he had a big vision about what it meant to use your education to drive social change. He was a big believer in the notion of service and the idea that having an education was also a responsibility, right? And you had a responsibility to drive for systemic and structural change. And he lived his life that way. And you look at the arc of the things Nugget cared about, you sort of see that enacted, right, between things about economic transformation but also Indigenous rights and sovereignty and ideas about the environment all kind of ring through his life. And when Brian came to the university, I think he was really interested in kind of reinvigorating that spirit of how do you solve hard problems and build capacity. And 
delightfully for me, he was willing to imagine that you'd put that meant bringing someone like me, who was clearly not a traditional academic, into the university. But it also dovetails into a conversation that's increasingly being had in the university sector in Australia that Brian is very deliberately driving about what does it mean to imagine what it means to be a successful academic. Now, funnily enough, they call the work I do non-traditional research outputs. And I'm like, oh, my God, like talk about marked category activity, but, you know, (laughs) non-traditional research outputs, which includes things like the Boyers, uh, the podcasting I've done with Mark Pesci that includes the kind of talks we do, that includes all the work we're doing here. And all I keep thinking is one day we'll just call those research outputs, right? And so for me, building a curriculum, having our students do the kind of work they do, of creating other ways of getting the value out of the university is hugely important for me. Uh, I was teasing Brian the other day that he had a seed library here and that what he should be doing was sowing those seeds elsewhere rather than constantly keeping them inside the building. Um, and, yeah, I'm sure it rubs some of my colleagues up the wrong way and that's okay, right? You know, I am I have a high tolerance for dissent that way and I, I tend to think that one has a responsibility to, well, take what you know and make it available to other people. I don't want to kind of keep it to myself and, you know, if I really am foolish enough to think we're going to establish a new branch of engineering. I'm going to need a whole lot of other people involved. So you kind of need to find pathways for them to be involved. But yeah, it's not been a, um, it's not been the easiest two years of my life. Hmm. Um, then again, I was the anthropologist in a tech company. So like the yeah. easiest two years of my life, I was like, eh. <laughs> oh, yeah, been there, done that, got the t-shirts. Um, if there is like one idea from all of the work that you've been doing here or throughout your career that you could just like inject into mainstream understanding and help things move forward. You know, what, what do you think that might be? Oh, that every technology has a history and you should remember those histories. Yeah. I think that's it, that every technology has a backstory, right, and that every technology as a result has a country and a progenitor, usually a progenitor, um, that it has a moment and that that moment sits inside that technology, which in turn means that every technology imagines an ideal state. Mm. And we should be able to be asking more critical questions about that. But I think the short answer to that would be every technology has a history. Mm. It sort of reminds me of the um, Douglas Rushkoff's book, Program Will Be Programmed. And just that idea that I always like the basic idea there of, of if people just simply grow up thinking that, you know, Facebook is not that it was created by these people for these purposes and it's all this machine, Um, yeah, then they won't sort of realise that there's something really important here that they need to know is is doing things to them and that is using them in a different way as a tool and all that sort of stuff. Well, because then you have all this legacy stuff we forget about, right? So when you came into this building, there's an automatic set of doors in the lobby, right, that open up when you come near them. They have a sensor there designed to find the body for whom they should open. And they were designed many, many years ago with a particular kind of body to keep certain kinds of people in or out. So to stop small children running in and out of buildings to keep them safe. But they had ideas about how tall you should be or how short you should be. Turns out without high heels on, I often can't find – the door can't see me. So I'm waving my hand like a <laughs> lunatic. Like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, nothing. I have a colleague of mine uh, back at Intel who's an ex uh, – NBA basketball player. He's so tall they don't see him either. He has to wave at them in a completely different way. And you're like, okay, that's just weird. But like those doors, because of the moment they were created, imagine a user, Mm. but that user can't be in a wheelchair. That user can't be small. That user can't be too tall. I imagine there's probably some issues about how that user is moving or not moving. And something as simple as a sensor on a door has an imagined ideal 
way it wants to behave. And then you think about how you build those sensors into more and more things and they get more and more kind of embedded and nested down. And you think every single one of those, someone made a choice about what the world was going to be like. Mm. And I don't want to ever take those choices for granted or have them so invisible that I can't ask a question about, well, who else doesn't that work for? Or what was the world you imagined? And is that the world we'd still want in 2019 or 2020? And usually the answer is no. <laughs> so for me, I want to kind of want to get to ask those questions and I'd like not to be the only one asking those questions. So I've graduated 16 students. You can ask them too. So yay, go us. <laughs> so is there something, I hope there is, is there, what gives you hope for solving some of these problems in the coming years? Uh, so oh, it's always a good question. I used to get asked a lot. Uh, in my days in Silicon Valley about whether I was optimistic or pessimistic about the future, which is a variant on that question, right? Mm. And uh, I think about some of the people who created Intel and the thing they always used to say was the only way to make a future you want to live in is to build it. And so for me, the answer is, well, sure, it's easy to be pessimistic about the future. It's easy to be seduced by the kind of narratives to be optimistic about it too. But the reality is if you want to have a future in which you can comfortably and safely live, you actually have to build it. And for me, I was raised with this very clear sense that you had a moral obligation to make the world a better place and that that should be about everything you did. That should be about your intellectual choices, your personal choices, your professional choices, the way you spend your time and your money, and that it shouldn't just be better for you, it should be better for many. And it meant that that was meant you should be building a world that was more fair and more equitable and more just. And that's a lot of work. But the only way I know how to think about a a future to be optimistic about is to imagine that I should be actively building it. And the thing I'm most optimistic about is I get to do it here with a bunch of people who are crazy enough to be bought into that too. And that's kind of amazing. Thank you so much, Genevieve. You're very welcome. You can find out more about what distinguished Professor Genevieve Bell is up to down at Australian National University and the 3AI via... 3aInstitute.cecs.anu.edu.au or you can probably just look up 3AI and her name and you'll find it that way. Uplink is part of the Byteside Podcast Network. You can find all our podcasts via byteside.com.